Some might say it is one of the most powerful tools of communication, social media. From likes to comments, dances to rants, we all have found a way to express ourselves for the world to see. But as 97% of teens spend most of their time online, there is a dark layer to many of these platforms they find themselves on, which causes some to worry. And I would contend that what the internet often does, because it's primary purpose is to like feed us information so that we're engaged is it way too often in young people exposes them to information ahead of schedule they don't have the ability to process responsibly what they're seeing a recent study by the city university of london found that in a survey of 1016 to 17 year olds 63 percent had watched pornography on social media compared to 47% who had viewed it on dedicated porn websites, proving that sexually explicit content is becoming more readily available to younger people. Canadian Senator Julie Miville Deschenes presented a new bill that would restrict online access to sexually explicit material to young people under the age of 18, proposing sites institute age verification technology to add a safeguard which would prevent easy access. And the effects of early exposure to pornography are startling. I affirm that protecting children against pornography is both a health and a public safety issue. Exposing minors, especially boys, to online porn is associated with a number of harmful effects. Addiction, aggressive sexual behavior, fear, anxiety, and an increase in sexist beliefs that particularly affect girls and women. But critics say the proposed legislation will infringe on Canadians' privacy and question why the bill aims to protect young people under the age of 18 when the age of consent in Canada is 16. Others say this is too big of a job for internet service providers to tackle alone. Is proposed legislation enough to protect young eyes from sexually explicit material? What safeguards should we put in place? Today on Context, explicit content, pornography, and underage access. Welcome to Context, I'm Maggie John. Studies including in the Journal of Early Adolescence show early exposure to pornography can impact young people's relationships, social anxiety, academics, and lead to sexual activity at a young age. Later on in the show, we'll hear from one young man who shares his experience with being exposed to porn at the age of eight due to easy online access. But as you just heard off the top of the show, a Canadian senator is trying to change that access with a new bill that will have porn companies place age verification tools on their sites. Julia Beasley is the Director of Public Policy for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and she joins me now to explain the bill. Julia, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Hi, Maggie. So Bill S-210 proposes to force online porn sites to put age verification me measures on uh, some of these sites. How exactly would this work? So the bill would make it an offense for organizations to make sexually explicit material available to minors online. So um, in the bill, making available means to transmit, to distribute, or to sell. So it doesn't explicitly mandate age verification, but what it does do is set the stage for establishment of a designated authority that would require sites to put these measures in place. 
as she said uh, in her intro, the, the purpose is to protect public health and safety. There is a range of harms that are widely known and increasingly accepted um, from young people being exposed to this material online. So it's important that we take action. This bill is currently before the Senate Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs for the second time, actually. It was there before the last election was called and had to be reintroduced. And now it's it's sitting there again because it's kind of had to take a back seat to a lot of other government legislation. But the committee has already studied the bill and has had some hearings on it. And so we're waiting to see if they might do more and certainly hoping that the bill will pass through the Senate this fall and be sent to the House of Commons where it'll go through the same process. Okay. Are other countries also putting safeguards for explicit content, Julia? Yeah, there are a number of countries that have either passed legislation or are looking at different strategies to prevent minors from accessing this content online. So in 2021, the Australian government, for example, passed an online safety bill and asked the country's e-safety commissioner to develop kind of a roadmap for implementation. What would this look like? So there's been lots of consultation and work ongoing, and they are to present a report to the government in December. Germany has actually had an age verification regime in place for many years now. Under their law, um, content like child sexual abuse materials and violent pornography is illegal across the board for everyone. But content that is legal for adults or that they have decided is harmful to the development of young people are required you know, sites that host that content are required by law to make sure it's only accessible to adults. And their regulator actually um, actively enforces this law. Um, the European Council has draft legislation and the UK has an online safety bill that is in different stages of consideration as well. So there are lots of countries that are taking action on this. Makes you wonder what, what's taking Canada so long to make these changes. <laughs> A big criticism with age verification is privacy. Is this a valid concern? Uh, yeah, so I find this a bit curious, or maybe ironic is a better word, that this is so often raised as a roadblock to age verification, not because the issue of privacy or what happens with people's data aren't legitimate concerns, particularly when we're talking about minors, mm -hmm. but because the truth is big porn sites collect so much data. Just as an example, every year Pornhub releases its year in review report. This is kind of a look back at the previous year. What are the trends? What are we seeing? Well, they release data about the gender, the age, the location of those who are consuming their content, what devices they're watching on, what search engine they're using, what time of day, what they're looking for, and how long they're spending. They collect a lot of data, and that's just what they publicize. So when we're talking about protecting kids from very real harms and consequences and this obstacle of privacy and protecting data comes up, it's a little frustrating because it seems a bit out of touch with this particular reality. But having said that, of course, there are legitimate concerns about privacy and personal data. Um, I don't think these sites should be allowed to collect that much data from anyone. And of course, when we talk about age verification, there have to be strict regulations around what data is collected, who collects it, who are they accountable to, and what happens with that data. But because we are a little bit behind on this, we have the benefit of learning 
from other jurisdictions that have been working at figuring out the best methods and the best balance for years. The technology has come a long way and we can now effectively determine the age of users without breaching their privacy rights. All right, Julia Beasley is the Director of Public Policy for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Thank you again. My pleasure. My next guest was just eight years old when he first came across pornography and just a couple of years later, he knew where to look when he wanted to see more. Smith joins me now. Thanks for joining me, Smith. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So Smith, what happens the first time you accidentally came across pornography online? Yeah, so um, as, as a little kid, my parents were actually super proactive about having conversations with us about what to do when we when we saw pornography. I had a little Android tablet that I had gotten for Christmas um, just earlier, the, earlier that year. And um, I was online and I clicked on a link that wasn't what I thought it was. And I saw soft, soft pornography for the very first time. And I came from a background where I have a stutter um, and growing up it, it was really bad and I got bullied for it and I felt I felt very alone and isolated and so I remembered at this point the phrase that my parents had taught me which is turn it off and tell an adult and so I, I turned this this tablet off and I set it down and I thought about that second part tell an adult and immediately my mind went back to that to that little kid who didn't feel like he was enough um, you know thinking back to the times that that my parents got angry for me leaving underwear on the bathroom or like, you know, leaving shoes out in the front room. And I thought that, you know, this is a hundred times worse and that the consequences and the punishments are going to be a hundred times worse. And so I, I just couldn't bring myself to, to tell them about the experience. I was, I was too scared. I was ashamed. I felt like they'd be disappointed in me. And so um, I, I hid, I hid it. Um, and and I, I ran away from from them and that experience. And just a couple of years later, you were looking for more content, more pornography. When did you realize that you were addicted? I think there comes to be a point where I I hated how I felt. I hated the the feeling of not being able to to look at someone without objectifying them for for how their body looks instead of how they are as a human um and i i continue to feel isolated and and i wanted to to be free and but again i, I like i couldn't tell anyone about this right it, it was my biggest secret especially growing up as a christian you know it, it was my biggest sin as well and i i, I couldn't tell anyone and so I tried to get over it myself and I tried and I tried and I tried and I couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, um, I couldn't stay true to myself. I couldn't keep a promise to myself. And that was very, very discouraging. Um, and so I think it was then when, when you try your best to do it alone, you can't, you can't get over it. And I think that's what addiction is all about. Uh, my, one of my favorite quotes says, addiction is grown in solitude and destroyed in community. Mm -hmm. And so you know, you know, it's an addiction when it when it can't be destroyed alone, because that's where it grows. Yeah. And you know, it's addiction when the only place it can be destroyed, um, and it can be defeated is is in community. Yeah, so important to hear. Smith, what were some of the effects that you had that that pornography had on you as a young man? Tons and tons and tons. 
Um, I mean, again, the biggest one is, is uh, objectification and porn teaches, porn teaches our culture to, to look at people for, for their bodies and not, and not for who they are. Um, you know, it teaches um, people, especially adult men to, to fetishize over, over young girls. Um, and these are effects that they don't go away the, the second that you stop consuming pornography. They don't just disappear. You know, these are these are things that I had to retrain my brain over and over and over to look at people in their eyes like the first time that I met them. And I had to continue to train my brain um, to look at people for their soul and who they are and their personality and their true being instead of their body. Um, and that's something that, again, it, like it doesn't just go away. And then there was a series of, of mental health effects, you know, dealing with anxiety because I was constantly worried about my friends and my family finding out about the secret that I was trying very, very hard to hide and dealing with, with depression and feeling like I wasn't enough, feeling like I, I wasn't sufficient for my family and for my God. And uh, just, just a tremendous amount of, of hopelessness. And a tremendous amount of of feeling like there was nowhere to go, um, it that that takes a toll on you, um, and that's what that's what the facts show too. So good, thank you so much, Smith Ali, for sharing your story with us and just being candid about your journey. Thank you. Chris McKenna is the founder of Protect Young Eyes, an organization set to help families, schools, and churches create safer digital environments, as well as provide tools and resources to help parents navigate the online world most of our kids live and interact in. Welcome to Context, Chris. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. So how easy is it for young people to see pornography on social media platforms like Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok? Easier than I think parents want to admit anything that allows, and it's been this way since the beginning of the internet. My general statement, Maggie, has been that any platform, any app, no matter what its purpose is, if it allows human beings to upload content, no matter how strong its community guidelines are, whatever moderation practices it has in place, it's always going to have pornography in some way. You may have to dig deep to find it, or sometimes you don't, but it's always going to be present. And what's interesting about that is in parents' minds, we have a pretty black and white sort of view of pornography. You often think of the magazine or that very obvious form of pornography that maybe was around when we were growing up or some VHS tape that was hiding under somebody's mattress, right? But that is so much different than the pornography that exists today that I could unpack further. But I think that's a, a big thing that parents need to understand is this is not the porn that we grew up with. Yeah, and, and that it's everywhere. So in your opinion, you know, the, the conversation that's happening here in Canada is about age verification on some of these sites. Do you think that's a reasonable safeguard against early access to porn is having these age verification tools? I think age verification is important. It's how we prevent young people from accessing places that we don't want them to access in the physical world. Now, I know that's complicated in the digital world because whether it's in Canada or the United States, we have 
adults who have rights to certain places, and we need to be careful to guard those. And I'm very much a proponent of that. But I've also seen very simple applications employ some very simple techniques to make sure that young people are in fact guarded and an adult has said, yes, you can be here. I remember very vividly during COVID when my son was using a very popular app called Among Us, which went viral all over the world, right? Yeah. Kids used it all over yeah. the place. But when my son said that he was nine, even though it was a nine plus app, the app stopped and said, hand the device to a parent. And I had to put in a credit card number and it put a micro charge of a penny on my card and then took it off of my card. But to verify that I was an adult who was allowing my nine-year-old son to use the game Among Us, which has very minimal risk, yet they were doing an awesome job of making sure that if it was a child using the app, then they had certain controls around the texting in the meetings that took place that they couldn't be freehand texting and commenting if they were nine years old. So I loved that very simple approach. And there are many ideas like that that could be replicated to prevent young people from being in places they shouldn't be. Yeah, I love that idea. And yes, Among Us is very popular in our household as well. So what are the real life risks, Chris, uh, of early access to porn for our young people? Pornography is a super normal stimulus. Therefore, it fires up the brain. Whether you're 4 or 14 or 40, right, it fires up the brain in ways that we were created to be fired up, right, so that we are attached emotionally, spiritually, physically, and relationally to another human being, my spouse. And so the risk is that when young people see pornography, one of the most egregious risks that we need to be careful of, and I hear this over and over again, is that when young people see porn, young people sometimes practice pornography on each other because young people have mirror neurons. We lose these as an adult, but this is why young people have an uncanny ability to copy the things that we say and do, sometimes embarrassingly, right? If we're a parent, we know this, right? And so the one thing, as I've talked to early, there are childhood assessment centers here in the town, the city that I live in, and they work with families who are either the victims of sexual abuse or who have a child who has sexually abused another child. And the number one common denominator that all of the children during the year that I interviewed them had in common for those who had abused other children was all of those children had an early childhood exposure to pornography mm -hmm. because what they see on the screen they feel neurologically compelled to do what they see their gross motor skills want to play out and that's not a good and bad kid thing we often think those are bad kids those are good kids who saw something that neurologically was so overstimulating that they felt like they had to do something about it. And that's just one of the many things that we need to be aware of. It's teaching our young people, especially in the teen years, a version of sex that is not real life. That is not love and respect and treatment of others. And so these are just a couple of the many risks that we need to be aware of when it comes to early exposure. Oh, so much to learn and so much to be aware of as a parent. Thank you so much, Chris McKenna from Protect Young Eyes. Thank you for your time today.
Coming up, the Q panel is back. Today we discuss access to pornography by young people. Should the issue of privacy trump creating safeguards for access to porn by children? We will discuss. In today's episode, we have discussed the increasingly easy access young people have to pornography online through social media platforms and online gaming. A proposed bill seeks to have social media websites create age verification tools that would hopefully deter access by young people. We're welcoming back Moira, Brian and Renee. Brian, would this work for you? Do you think this would work? Well, I think it needs to work. I think pornography is a huge problem. I think it's particularly a, a problem for um, the way women are treated, the way it does and the way it actually shapes our understanding around sex and the way that works itself out into culture. So I do actually think that the state has a role to restrict it. And a lot of times people refer to this as sort of restricting free speech, but we recognize that that is not an unlimited right and that the state has a role to um, care for uh, and actually protect its people. And so I absolutely think that there should be um, significant and strict limits on this. I think there's been some really good work done in the States talking about age verification. I think it should be as tight as absolutely possible that you need to provide some sort of form of identification, whether it's a license or something like that, so that people can't get around it. The reality is that pornography shapes the way people understand sex, and it shapes it in a way that dehumanizes and demeans people and often dehumanizes and demeans women first and foremost. So I think it has to stop. Well, we just heard from Julia Beasley earlier on in the show, Renee, and she said, you know, this. there have been changes in, in the UK and in Germany. There are age verification tools to many sites uh, already. What are your thoughts on this? I, I, I want to agree that it's just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, I've been reading some articles um, uh, rebutting this this proposed bill, an infringement on privacy and on our rights. Um, and, and I think that's a disingenuous argument um, at best. Um, we can write lines of code to do just about anything um, in this country. So I am I, absolutely in agreement that age verification is probably the minimum that we can do. I also think that the conversation starts at home and it starts at church. And there is so much more that we can be doing to support each other, to support our young people, um, to engage and start this conversation, however impolite and messy and uncomfortable it may be. We simply have to continue to have sustained conversations in our faith settings about gender, about sexuality, about agency and consent, about dignity, about the fact that we are all made in the image of God. What does that mean? Yeah. Moira, you know, as Renee just said, there have been some critics who have pointed out and, and, and claimed that this proposed law could infringe on privacy rights uh, of those who mm -hmm. want to access this information. What do you think about that, about that argument? And, you know, is, is it worth um, you know, the infringement per se of our privacy if it's going to protect our, our young people? I really think there, there has to be a, some kind of balancing. And I can understand any argument that talks about infringement on freedom of expression, in, infringement on, on your, one's own privacy. 
But when people are talking about access to porn sites, I don't buy that one bit. I think it very much depends you know, what your freedom of expression is about, what it's centering on. And when that, that sort of slight, to me, it would be a slight infringement on that freedom because one might be exposed then as somebody who's a consumer of porn and that might affect one's job and all that kind of thing. But balanced against the, our need to protect children and not just children, teenagers too, so not just young children, but even older teenagers, I, I think then for me, the balance tips completely. And when it comes to protecting children, especially from something as insidious as pornography, then I think it's very much worth it for somebody to say, I'm going to be inconvenienced. Some of the sites I visit might be blocked. I'm going to have to prove my age, all that kind of thing. But it, it just doesn't just doesn't make sense. Protecting children as far as possible. And what really worries me is that clearly so many have already been exposed. And I know we do need to talk about it in schools. I know we do talk, need to talk about it in church. But it seems to me that it really needs a legal approach, a, a governmental approach. People don't like government being involved. But when it comes to something as overarching as the tentacles of the porn industry and the number of people statistically who consume it, then I think government regulation is needed and it really has to be fairly firm. You know, Brian, you're a parent of, of young kids. Uh, you know, we just heard from a young man, Smith Alley, who talked about the fact that his parents had put all of the blocks on his computer and did all of the things, had all of the conversations, and yet he still was able to access porn. And we're not just talking about porn sites. We're talking on, like, you know, social media as well. There's soft porn. There's hypersexualized content that's coming through. What is the role of the church? Renee kind of touched on it uh, earlier. What is the role of the church? What is the role of parents? How do we partner, as Moira said, with government in making sure that our kids are protected as they're holding these supercomputers in their hands every day? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's ubiquitous. It can be found almost anywhere in any easy way. And so just like with alcohol, uh, we have you know, we have to show your card, your ID when you're buying alcohol. I don't see there's any how this is any different. I think it should be that way. But just as with alcohol, kids can access it. And I think that's why you need to have discussions in the church, uh, discussions at home about what is actually taking place here and what does it actually mean for us as human beings. I think what's very clear is that pornography, and you have to understand the sort of social structures about who gains by this, Pornography is the buying and selling of human flesh. And that's something that we need to be opposed to structurally because there are people who benefit. And the way it's built up is that people, we want people to come back again and again and again and again. People get addicted to it. They are seeking more and more um, extreme types of it. And what that ends up happening is that it has broad social consequences. So that basic functions of, of even sexuality within marriage then are, are impaired. There's all kinds of evidence that shows that Erectile dysfunction is on the rise, partially because of um, pornography. Relationships, uh, marriages are down, relationships are down. And, and it's absolutely true that the evidence suggests that this is part of that. And so what's ended up happening is that there's broader social consequences to what many people think is just individual actions. And if that's the case, then you have to have the broader social groups, churches, families, all responding in step with one another. And that's why I think it's important for the state to do it, but also for churches and families to lead in terms of what is a human person? What is our body for? And how do we use it in a way that is actually dignifying to us instead of demeaning? All right, we're going to end it there. Moira, Brian, and Renee, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.
I'm a mother to two amazing young boys. I love them and want to protect them for as long as I can. Isn't that how all parents and caregivers feel about the children in our lives? But we also know that the world is moving faster than it ever did when you and I were kids. And the access to information is literally at each of our kids' fingertips. So what do we do? Do we continue to shelter them and keep them in a bubble? Trust me, I wish if it were that easy, I'd be first in line to buy two bubbles. But we know it isn't that simple. I remember one friend saying to me, Maggie, we do our best to teach our kids all we can. And then there comes a point when they have to make choices on their own. And we hope and pray they use the tools we've imparted on them. Fingers crossed. Thank you for watching. Let us know what you think of today's topic. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. For all of us here, I'm Maggie John. See you next time. Thank you for your ongoing support of Crossroads, a supporter-funded nonprofit organization and member of the Canadian Centre for Christian Charities. Thanks to faithful people like you, we are able to continue producing context. You can write to Crossroads, PO Box 5100, Burlington, Ontario, L7R4M2, or visit crossroads.ca to learn more about our programs. Context Beyond the Headlines invites you to an exciting new season. This year, we're expanding our reach with a brand new podcast that will explore the interaction between faith, justice, culture, ethics, and society. As we move forward with this brand new season and the launch of this brand new podcast, would you consider partnering with Context financially? It is because of the generosity of viewers like you that we're able to continue to tell the stories that matter.